Welcome to the haunting stories. Sit cozily, relax, and enjoy the horror. It is Walnut Tree House by Charlotte Riddle. Chapter 2 The Child. It was later on in the same evening. Mr. Stainton had an hour previously taken possession of Walnut Tree House, dismissed his cab, bidden Timpson's clerk good evening, and, having ordered in wood and coals from the nearest greengrocer, besides various other necessary articles from various other tradesmen, he now stood by the front gate waiting the coming of the goods purchased. As he waited, He looked up at the house, which in the uncertain light of the street lamps appeared gloomier and darker than had been the case even in the gathering twilight. The long rows of shattered windows, the silent solemnity of great trees, remnants of a once goodly avenue that had served to give its name to Walnut Tree House, the appalling silence of everything within the place, when contrasted with the noise of passing cabs and whistling street boys, and men trudging home with unfurled umbrellas and women scudding along with draggled petticoats, might well have impressed even an unimpressionable man, and Edgar Stainton, spite of his hard life and rough exterior, was impressionable, and imaginative. It has an uncanny look, certainly, he considered, but it's not so cheerless for a lonely man as the bush, and though I am not overtired, I fancy I shall sleep more soundly in my new home than I did many a night at the goldfields. When once I can get a good fire up, I shall be all right. Now I wonder when these coals are coming. As he turned once again towards the road, he beheld on its way the sack of fuel with which the nearest greengrocer said he thought he could, indeed he would, oblige him. A ton half, a ton quarter of a ton, the greengrocer affirmed, would be impossible until the next day. But a sack? Yes. He would promise that. Bill should bring it round, and Bill was told to put his burden on the track and twelve bundles of wood, and we will make up the rest tomorrow, added Bill's master with the air of one who has conferred a favour. In the distance, Mr. Stainton descried a very grimy Bill and a very small boy coming along with the track leisurely as though the load had been Herculean. Through the rain he watched the pair advancing and greeted Bill with a glad voice of welcome. So you've come at last, that's right. Better late than never. Bring them this way. I will have this small lot shot in the kitchen for the night. Begging your pardon, sir, answered Bill. I don't think you will, that is to say, not by me. As I told our governor, I'll take them to the house as you sold them to the house, but I won't set a foot inside it. Do you mean to say you are going to leave them out on the pavement? asked Mr. Stainton. 
Well, sir, I don't mind taking them to the front door if it will be a convenience. That will do. You are a brave lot of people in these parts, I must say. As for that, retorted Bill with sack on back and head bent forward, I dare say we are as brave about here as where you come from. It is not impossible, retorted Mr. Stainton. There are plenty of cowards over there too. With a feint of being very much afraid, Bill, after he had shot his calls on the margin of the steps, retreated from the door, which stood partly open, and when the boy who brought up the wood was again out with the truck, said, putting his knuckles to his eyebrows, Beg pardon, sir, but I suppose you couldn't give us a drop of beer? Very wet night, sir. No, I could not, answered Mr. Stainton very decidedly. I shall have to shovel these coals into the house myself, and as for the night, it is as wet for me as it is for you. Nevertheless, as Bill shuffled along the short drive, shuffling warily, like a man who, having nearly finished one day's hard work, was looking forward to beginning another hard day in the morning, the new owner relented. Here, he said, picking out the sixpence to give him. It isn't your fault, I suppose, that you believe in old women's tales. Thank you kindly, sir, Bill answered. I am sure I am extremely obliged, but if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't stop in that house. You'll excuse me, sir, meaning no offence, but I wouldn't, indeed, I wouldn't. It seems to have got a good name, at any rate, thought Mr. Stainton while retracing his steps to the barn tenement. Let us see what effect the fire will have in routing the shadows. He entered the house and, striking a match, lighted some candles he had brought in with him from a neighbouring oil shop. Years previously, the gas company, wary of receiving no profit from the house, had taken away their meter and cut off their connections. The water supply was in the same case as Mr. Stainton, going round the premises before it grew quite dark, had discovered. Of almost all small articles of furniture easily broken by careless tenants, easily removed by charwomen, the place was perfectly bare, and as there were no portable candlesticks, in which to place the lights, the new tenant was forced to make his illumination by the help of some dingy mirrors provided with scones, and to seek such articles as he needed by the help of a guttering mouth candle stuck in the neck of a broken bottle. After an inspection of the ground floor rooms, he decided to take up his quarters for the night in one which had evidently served as a library. In the centre of the apartment there was the table covered with leather. Around the walls were bookcases, still well filled with volumes, too uninviting to borrow, too valueless in the opinion of the ignorant to steal. In one corner stood a bureau, where the man, who for so many years had been dead even while living, kept his letters and papers. The floor was bare. Once a turkey carpet had been spread over the centre of the polished oak boards, but it lay in its wonted place no longer. Between the windows hung a convex mirror, in which the face of any human being looked horrible and distorted, whilst over the mantel shelf 
Indeed, forming a portion of it, was a long, narrow glass, bordered by a frame ornamented with a tracery of leaves and flowers. The ceiling was richly decorated, and spite of the dust and dirt and neglect of years, all the appointments of the apartment he had selected gave Edgar Stainton the impression that it was a good thing to be the owner of such a mansion. Even though it did chance to be situated as much out of the way of fashionable London as the Diggins, whence he had come. And there is not a creature but myself left to enjoy it all, he mused, as he sat looking into the blazing coals. My poor mother, how she would have rejoiced tonight, had she lived to be the mistress of so large a place. And my father would harbour this would have seemed after the storms that buffeted him. Well, they are better off, I know. And yet I cannot help thinking how strange it is all. That I, who went away a mere beggar, should come home rich, to be made richer, and yet stand so utterly alone that in the length and breadth of England I have not a relative to welcome me, or to say, I wish you joy of your inheritance. He had eaten his frugal supper, and now, pushing aside the table on which the remains of his repast were spread, he began walking slowly up and down the room, thinking over the past and forming plans for the future. As he was buried in reflection, the fire began to die down without his noticing the fact. But a sudden feeling of chilliness at length, causing him instinctively to look towards the hearth, he threw some wood into the grate, and, while the flames went blazing up the white chimney, piled on coals as though he desired to set the house alight. While he was so engaged, there came a knock at the door of the room. A feeble, hesitating knock, which was repeated more than once before it attracted Mr. Stainton's attention. When it did, being still busy with the fire and forgetting he was alone in the house, he called out, Come in. Along the panels there stole a rustling sort of touch, as if someone were feeling uncertainly for the handle. A curious noise, as of a weak hand fumbling about the door in the dark. Then, in a similar manner, the person seeking admittance tried to turn the lock. Come in, can't you? repeated Mr. Stainton. But even as he spoke, he remembered he was, or ought to be, the sole occupant of the mansion. He was not alarmed. He was too much accustomed to solitude and danger for that, but he rose from his stooping position and instinctively seized his revolver, which he had chanced, while unpacking some of his effects, to place on the top of the bureau. Come in, whoever you are, he cried, but seeing the door remained closed, though the intruder was evidently making futile efforts to open it, he strode halfway across the room and then stopped, amazed. For suddenly the door opened and there entered, shyly and timidly, a little child.
A child with the saddest face mortal ever beheld. A child with wistful eyes and long, ill-kept hair. A child poorly dressed, wasted and worn, and with the mournfulest expression on its countenance that face of a child ever wore. What a hungry little beggar, thought Mr. Stainton. Well, young one, and what do you want here? He added aloud. The boy never answered, never took the slightest notice of his questioner, but simply walked slowly round the room, peering into all the corners as if looking for something. Searching the embrasures of the windows, examining the recesses beside the fireplace, pausing on the hearth to glance under the library table, and finally, when the doorway was reached once more, turning to survey the contents of the apartment with an eager and yet hopeless scrutiny. What is it you want, my boy? asked Mr. Stainton, glancing as he spoke at the child's poor thin legs and short shabby frock, and shoes swelling worn out, and arms bare and lean and unbeautiful. Is it anything I can get for you? Not a word, not a whisper, only for a reply a glance of the wistful brown eyes. Where do you come from and who do you belong to? persisted Mr. Stainton. The child turned slowly away. Come, you shall not get off so easily as you seem to imagine, persisted the new owner, advancing towards his visitor. You have no business to be here at all, and before you go you must tell me how you chanced to be in this house, and what you expected to find in this room. He was close to the doorway by this time, and the child stood on the threshold with its back towards him. Mr. Stainton could see every detail of the boy's attire. His little prayed frog, which he had outgrown, the hooks which fastened it, the pianoforte soiled and crumpled, tied behind with strings broken and knotted. In one place the skirt had given from the body, and a piece of thin poor flannel showed that the child's under abilments matched in shabbiness his exterior garments. Poor little chap, thought Mr. Stainton. I wonder if he would like something to eat. Are you hungry, my lad? The child turned and looked at him earnestly, but answered never a word. I wonder if he is dumb, marvelled Mr. Stainton, and seeing he was moving away, put out a hand to detain him. But the child eluded his touch and flitted out into the hall and up the wide staircase with swift, noiseless feet. Only waiting to snatch a candle from one of the scones, Mr. Stainton pursued as fast as he could follow. Up the easy steps he ran at the top of his speed, but fast as he went the child went faster. Higher and higher he beheld the tiny creature mounting, then... Still keeping the same distance between them, it turned when it reached the top story and trotted along a narrow corridor with rooms opening off to right and left. At the extreme end of this passage, 
a door stood ajar. Through this, the child passed, Mr. Stainton still following. I have run you to earth at last, he said, entering and closing the door. Why? Where has the boy gone? He added, holding the candle above his head and gazing round the dingy garret in which he found himself. The room was quite empty. He examined it closely, but could find no possible outlet save the door and the skylight which had evidently not been opened for years. There was no furniture in the apartment except a trackle bedstead, a rush-bottomed chair and a rickety washstand. No wardrobe or box or press where even a kitten might have lain concealed. It is very strange, muttered Mr. Stainton as he turned away baffled. Very strange, he repeated while he walked along the corridor. I don't understand it at all, he decided, proceeding slowly down the topmost flight of stairs. But then all at once he stopped. It is the child, he exclaimed aloud, and the sound of his own voice woke strange echoes through the silence of that desolate house. It is the child. And he descended the principal staircase very slowly, with bowed head, and his grave, thoughtful face, graver and more thoughtful than ever.